0: you talking about our sovereign king and his great uh, kingdom as he rules and reigns over all. And so the title of the series is The World Seems Out of Control, but what we're going to talk about today is the fact that God brings down the proud. So let's start with this. So uh, the busy travel weekend and uh, people were flying all over the place like a holiday or something and, uh, you know. Flights started getting canceled, crazy things started happening, so some people got bumped off the flights, they were trying to get home, and so they found a small little tiny plane that they could charter, and so there were three people who ended up on a plane together that just the three of them and the pilot, they had never met each other, okay, so there was a Boy Scout, a scientist, and a priest. So apparently, you know, it's not a real story, but um, there's a a Boy Scout, a scientist, and a priest, and uh, they're getting to know each other, and they're talking, and, uh, you know, the Boy Scout, nice young man, teenager, on his way to being an Eagle Scout, and he's talking about himself a little bit, you know, and the priest is talking about his ministry and whatnot, but the scientist is pretty arrogant. And he's talking about all of his great scientific discoveries and he's boasting about what a genius he is and, and, and these kind of things. And so they're talking, they're going along, everything's fine until uh, something weird starts happening with the plane and you know they start getting nervous. And then uh, after a few minutes, the uh, pilot comes over the intercom and he says, well, uh, man, I've got some bad news for you and I've got some good news for you. The bad news is the plane's going down. The good news is there are some parachutes on the plane, but the bad news is uh, that uh, there's only three parachutes, and I'm taking the first one, so two of you are fine. So he takes one of the parachutes, he jumps, and, you know, the plane's going down, and so, uh, you know, at that point, there's three of them, there's two parachutes, well, the the genius. I mean, he he runs uh, for the parachutes and grabs one. And he's like, and I'm sorry, guys, but you know I'm really important to the world. Uh, I've made all these great scientific discoveries. The world uh, needs me, and so uh, I I gotta go. And so he jumps, and there's the boy scout and, and the and the priest left. And so the priest is like, well. Son, I, I'm, I'm an old man, and I've lived a good life, and I'm ready to go. And so, uh, you know, you, you take the other parachute and jump, and, you know, I, I'll go down with the plane. And he's like, Father, you don't need to do that. Uh, we, we can both jump. And he, he's like, well, wait, there's only one para- parachute left. What are you talking about? You know, somebody's got to go down with the plane. It needs to be me. And he's like, no, uh, we can both uh, jump. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the genius... He took my Boy Scout backpack and jumped. (laughs) Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In James chapter 4, the Bible says that God gives more grace, but it says he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And then James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. And and then um, in Daniel 4.37, and and this is the the end of the passage that uh, we're uh, looking at today. And so this this is kind of the summary. This is the big picture uh, of it. And um, this is you know, where we're getting to, and then we'll kind of circle around and see how we get there with Nebuchadnezzar, but it says, those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Cindy Grananis has said that Daniel chapter 4 is a story about two sovereignties, and he's talking about God and Nebuchadnezzar. In, in the first four chapters of Daniel coming to a head here, you have an earthly ruler acting like he's God. And here you have the Most High God now showing him who the real ruler and the real God is. Do you understand, though, in a sense, this is all of our spiritual stories? Ever since the Garden of Eden, this is who we are and what we've been like. We've tried to be our own God. We've tried to determine our own fate. We've tried to have it our own way. There's, there's a lot of things. I don't have the time to develop this today. Uh, the, in in the, this story that harkens back uh, to, to Genesis chapter 3. But when you think about pride, C.S. Lewis wrote this. I, I think it's maybe the most insightful thing that's ever been written uh, on the subject. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault that makes a man more popular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, he's not diminishing other sins. He's just saying pride's the root. Other sins are the fruit. And... Um, you know, what I've found in my life is that God has been very patient with me in most ways, but that's not how he is when it comes to pride. You guys know what whack-a-mole is? I mean, Andy came up with a picture of whack-a-mole. I don't know why she would put a cat in it. But um, but what I've found in my life when it comes to pride, it's like God's playing whack-a-mole with it. I mean, every time it comes up, he waxed me. It's really what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. So we read the last verse. We started at the end. But let's go back and, and go to the beginning and let Nebuchadnezzar share his story with us. Really, in, in church, some of what's happening in Daniel chapter 4, to use churchy terms, is Nebuchadnezzar sharing his testimony. And so this is what he says. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, Does this sound like the guy that we've been reading about in the last three chapters? Now, a lot of us can relate to this, though. If you got saved when you were an adult, you can relate to this. It's like, there was one way I was before, and now I'm different now. And and that's what he's sharing. sharing about what God has done in in his life. And a couple things I want to point out here is is notice in in verse 1 this phrasing of all people's nations and languages. It reminds me of the Great Commission. It's it's missionary language. I I said last week there's this missionary undertone through the book of Daniel, and you see it here. And really what you're seeing happen, and I may be getting ahead of the story a little bit, but basically uh, Nebuchadnezzar is converted, but what you're seeing him expressing here is that evangelism isn't really complete until the evangelized become evangelist. And that's what's happening. The other thing, just uh, kind of you know, background for a second. You know, he's testifying to what God's done for him. He's declaring God's goodness and greatness. He's acknowledging God as the ultimate king instead of himself. But think about where he had been. You know, in chapter one, he's uh, robbing the temple of um, you know the the holy implements. In, in chapter two, after he sees God's God works. He calls him the God of gods. I mean, he's acknowledging the reality of Daniel's gods, but just seeing him as a god. At, at the, in chapter three, we see him having an idol constructed, and then he asks the uh, rebellious, uh, prideful question of, "Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands?" But then, at the end of chapter three, after he sees God uh, deliver them, you know, he blesses God, but You know, clearly he wasn't all the way there yet. In chapter 4, he's all the way there, but what got him there? And here's the story. Verse 4, he says he was at rest in his house and flourishing in his palace. And then I'm just going to summarize verses 5 through 9 for time's sake. It's kind of like chapter 2. He had a dream. He got scared, and he called for the wise men. The wise men couldn't interpret it. He's not threatening anybody this time. But this time, he just quickly goes ahead and calls in Daniel because he knows Daniel is the one who can handle it. So he calls in Daniel. Daniel comes in, starting in verse 10. He says, these are the, were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. "'Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. "'The beasts of the field found shade under it. "'The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. "'I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, "'and there was a watcher, a holy one, probably an angel, uh, coming down from heaven. "'He cried aloud and said thus, "'Chop down the tree and cut off its branches.' "'Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the beast get out from under it "'and the birds from its branches. "'Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, "'bound with a band of iron and bronze "'in the tender grass of the field. "'Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, "'and let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. "'Let his heart be changed from that of a man. "'Let him be given the heart of a beast.' And let seven times, which Bible scholars debate the meaning of times. Uh, I'm in the camp of believing it refers to years. I think this is to happen. happened was seven years, but that's debatable. Let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it... The lowest of men. And that phrase is also repeated in verses 25 and 32. Uh, if, if somebody that you think is terrible gets elected, you might want to remember that phrase. It's over it, the lowest of men. Um, verse 18, uh, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel's Babylonian name, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. So, in other words, this is the dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Daniel, tell me what it means. And so, verse 19, says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Now, before we go on and read the interpretation of the dream over the next few verses, I want to just... I want us to think about Daniel's response here, because I don't want us to miss this. This is kind of amazing. Um, Two sides to his response. One side, read a quote by David Helm. He says, we must be willing to share the bad news with people, that they're out of sorts with God, even as their heart breaks for them while saying it. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with this pride, the human tendency to push him aside and think that we are the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against us so that we might one day know that he rules and not us. Finally, we must be ready to call for repentance and offer hope. Daniel didn't shirk from speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. In doing so, he has provided us with an example of the backbone needed to be faithful when our opportunity comes. So that's one side of it, his boldness. I want you to think about another side of it, though. Think about his compassion and his forgiveness. Now, notice his response. Now, I think I, and maybe a lot of us might be, if we heard a dream like this, maybe we, you know, we couldn't say it in the presence of the king, but on the inside we'd be like, yes, he's finally getting what's coming to him. And, and, and there's a sense in which that's true. And I'm not saying you know, the desire for justice is an innate God-given response from a just God. But I mean, think about it, this man overran his country, essentially mocked his God, took him captive, his friends, from a human perspective, ruined their lives. And Daniel's like, King, this is bad, and I really don't want to tell you this, I wish I could tell your enemies, but I'm going to tell you the truth. But that's his heart. His mindset wasn't, oh, he's getting what's coming to him. You know what? I think we really need to get over that today. There's a lot of that today. There's a lot of us vilifying people and us and them and our enemies. But you know what this would, would say to us? It would say that if we really believe the gospel that number one, we need to get rid of this us and them mentality and realize it's us and Jesus. We're all in the same boat. There's only one good guy, and it's Jesus. We're all uh, the, the bad guys. And so if we want other people to get what they deserve, understand we're in the same boat, and that means we need to get what we deserve. So really, the way we should think is not, oh, people need to get what they deserve. We need to think that if we get what we deserve, We get judgment, but the gospel is that Jesus took on himself what we deserve, so we don't have to get what we deserve, which is mercy, and we can get what we don't deserve, which is blessing, which is grace, and and, and that's the gospel. And if we think that way, we don't have to live with a bunch of enemies and us against them. We can be missionaries to everybody and share the gospel of grace knowing that's what we all need. And that's what he exemplifies for us there. And so, starting in verse 20, then he interprets the dream. He says, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you. He spoke truth to power. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. In other words, God is able to bring down the proud and in his severe, painful mercy, in order to redeem Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to take him from being the most powerful man in the world, the head of gold in the image of chapter 2, to make him like a beast of the field you know we, we don't know i mean there's some uh, psychiatric definitions for that kind of thing but but this wasn't a delusion i mean this was something that that really happened in some sense. And, you know, you say, well, did this really happen? I mean, that sounds kind of crazy. Well, you know, I believe it because it's the Word of God. But then if you study history and archaeological inscriptions and those kind of things, I mean, there's no direct correlation of this, but there's what could be considered some allusions to it that ancient historians uh, talked about, and it's not worded the exact same way, but it could certainly be interpreted to be talking about the same thing. And so, you know, then Daniel gives him some details. Uh, you know, this is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you. Till you know, here's that phrase again, that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. In other words, he's saying to him, repent before it's too late. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And and so now, this is going to be the fulfillment. It says at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And, and what we're going to read in verse 30 is just one of the most... Rank expressions of pride that you could ever read. It would be the kind of thing that we would be so turned off with if somebody else said it to us. But like C.S. Lewis said, we can be oblivious about it in ourselves sometimes. This certainly fits of what we know of Nebuchadnezzar in history and archaeology. I mean, archaeologists say basically everything that he built, his name, was all over it. He, He was trying to make himself known. But here's what he said in verse 30. Is, this, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Is that not pride in a sentence? It makes me think of uh, something that Pat Riley wrote about. If you don't know who Pat Riley is right now, is the president of the Miami Heat uh, that's a basketball team if you're uh, not a basketball fan. But uh, if you remember back in the 1980s, you know, the Showtime Lakers, their kind of dynasty with Magic uh, Johnson, who, you know, at times broke the heart of this Boston Celtics uh, uh, fan. But, you know, Pat Riley was their coach. And in one of his books, he wrote about uh, they won the championship one year. They were the overwhelming uh, favorite to repeat uh, the, the, the next year. But then he talked about how they didn't win it because basically their team imploded on the inside. Uh, You know, egos took over and there's all this uh, infighting and disunity and and that kind of thing. And the phrase that he used to describe that, uh, I love the phrase. Uh, I don't think Pat Riley's a theologian, but this is a great theological phrase. Phrase. If you want a description of sin, if you want a description of pride, he said what happened is that his team got infected with the disease of me. Nebuchadnezzar was infected with the disease of me. Jimmy Inman is infected with the disease of me. You can laugh, but you are infected with the disease of me. Of me. Your spouse, don't say amen, is infected <laughs> with the disease of me. Why is marriage hard? Because both of us are infected with the disease of me. And what an expression of that. So, this is what actually happened. Verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So, you know, I'm focusing more on the pride element of this, but one of the, the themes, again, running through Daniel, is God rules in the affairs of men. He rules over nations. He rules over leaders. He he sets people up. He brings them down. We may not like them. We may not think they're qualified. We may think they are the lowest of men. But in God's sovereign purpose, he is using them in some way. So remember that. Uh, I mean, you know, vote. Vote according to your Christian convictions, but don't lose your mind over the election that's coming up next month. Whatever happens, God is still on the throne. So verse 33, it says, "...that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws." And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Understand, this is his testimony. God brought me down until I looked up to heaven, and now I'm praising his name for what he did for me. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, including him. God humbled him. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. So what's the conviction that we should glean from this, you know, like with every other chapter, conviction, action, Christ connection, the, the conviction is that God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble by his grace. God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble by his grace. It seems like the world is out of control and uh, the wicked are winning and people are doing whatever they want, but at the end of the day, God will bring down the proud. And if, if he's gracious to you, he'll humble you now so you can repent and be saved. That's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's five truths in this text that undergird this conviction that, that I want to give to us this morning. And, 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 and as I share these in You know, the next few minutes here, there's a couple different audiences here. If, If you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting Christ alone, these are reasons why you need the grace of God. If you are a Christian, these are reasons why every day we need to be battling against their pride. We all have a pride problem. I mean, it's it's just part of a sin nature. And so, are we walking in humility or are we walking in pride? Really, a proud Christian is an oxymoron. It makes no sense in the light of the cross, but it's something that we, by the grace of God, have to daily put to death in our lives, each and every one of us. But here's five truths that undergird and, and really that form this conviction. <clears throat> Number one, God's grace is our only hope because it means he is working for us when we deserve judgment. Now, look back in, in verse 2 for a second. This is so powerful, I think. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for us me. That he's worked for me. When did he work these things for him? When he was following God or rebelling against God? When he was rebelling against God. Why did he work these things for him? Was it because he deserved it? What did he deserve? Death, judgment. Was it because, you know, he was such a great king and such a lovely person? I mean, he was a narcissist. I mean, you know, he needed to be an anger man. He's just whacking people whenever they don't do what he wants. Why did God work for him? For the glory of God, by the grace of God. That is the only answer. And listen, the good news is that is... All of our spiritual story. We're we're Nebuchadnezzar. We're not Daniel here. We're Nebuchadnezzar. And we deserve judgment. But God has worked for us when he should and could have killed us. That's grace. Uh, J.I. Packer said something like, the whole story of the Bible, and you see it here, you see it from Genesis to Revelation, that we... Have tried to substitute ourselves in the place of God. We've tried to take his place, but Jesus came and substituted himself for us and actually took our place. That's grace. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And so that's why that we are to humble ourselves and depend on the grace of God, because he brings down the proud and, and God resists the proud, but he gives grace. To the humble, you want God to push you away or do you want Him to give you grace? Number two, every good thing we have is a gift of God by His grace. Verse 17, He he says, and and, you know, it's directly, literally talking about God's rule over the nations of men. But the second part of it, it says that He gives it to whomever. He will. You understand what he's finally acknowledging? That his kingdom, his glory, his splendor, his incredible palace, his accomplishments, uh, all the things that he had done, all the things that he had, this awesome life was not something that he deserved, not something he had created, not something that he had earned, but that it is a gift of the grace of God. And when we begin to recognize what the Bible says, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, it is a life-transforming thing. Because if we understand that we deserve bad things, but God gives us good things, and that's by His grace, then what do we have to be proud about? As we begin to thank God, that's one of the keys to humility. As we begin to acknowledge Him as as the source of of blessing. And it's true of everything in our lives. The Saturday before last was a special experience for me because... Um, You know, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary on January the 8th. You know, as you get the invitation, I encourage you to sign up for the celebration that evening at uh, Carson Newman. But that morning, we'll be showing a video that's kind of a retrospective of the 20 years. And um, we had a couple of videographers here on the the 1st, and we're filming some testimonies and interviews that'll be a part of it. And, you know, I sat here and listened to all of them, just heard people's stories, like, And God has been good to us. And it's His grace. It's not because of me. Many times it's been in spite of me. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. Let's not lose sight of that. Three, we need to see that God knows and deals with all of our sins. No matter who we are. Even if you're the most powerful man in the world. Even if you're the most powerful man in the world. I mean, we saw in verse, verse 30 that, uh, you know, built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Uh, but then he says, in verse 31, while the word was still in his mouth, a voice from heaven came and said, the kingdom has departed from you. In other words, in that moment, I'm dealing with you. I'm done with this. And what we have to realize, the Bible says this, Numbers thirty two twenty three. Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. 1 Timothy five twenty four. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. In other words, some people's sins are going to come out in the open now. But if not now, everybody's sins are going to come out into the open at, at the judgment. Galatians 6, 7. We reap what we sow. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. Listen, don't be so proud to think that you're not a sinner or that God's not going to deal with your sins or that you can get away with your sins or you can justify your own sins. Or that you've done enough good to balance out your sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And listen, if God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, he'll deal with us too. But we need to see, kind of out of that though, that it is not pleasant in the moment. But it is actually a gracious gift of God when he uses pain To break our pride and bring us to Him. You see, this thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar when the kingdom was taken away for this period of time, when he became like a beast in the field, when God humbled him, that was a gift. Listen, sometimes God's mercy is painful, but it's a gift. Listen, there's different reasons why we go through trials and and, and pain. But sometimes, and some of you may be here, some of you may be having a difficult time in life right now because of sin in your life or because you're not doing what God's called you to do, you're not where God wants you to be, or maybe you're not even a Christian and God in His grace is doing some things or letting some things happen. He's hurting you now to bring you something better later. He loves you enough to not leave you where you are. That's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, as I was sitting there Saturday before last and listening to these stories and think about what God has done and, and, and the joy that that brings. And, you know, thinking of the fact that, um, you know, my own kids have professed faith in Christ and gotten baptized here. My dad has. One of his brothers who's in heaven now has. And I think back to when I was running from the call of God uh, to preach on my life. And God made me literally miserable. And I praise God that he did. And I thank him for his grace and his mercy. Because he made me miserable then to set me up for a life of joy and blessing. And if he's doing that to you, don't run from it. Do what Nebuchadnezzar did. Give in, submit, surrender, receive his grace, humble yourself. One of the the guys that was here videoing, he's not the the main guy doing it, but his his friend, his name's Chris Turner. He's like the director of communications for the Tennessee Baptist Convention. And he told a, a story Uh, last week, and i didn't share a quick version of it for you. So he said he was an accounting major because he said he was sure that was a way to get rich, drive a Porsche, and live in a condo on a river in Memphis. So I don't know, Rob, you keeping the Porsche at home? Uh, I've not not seen it here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But he said, you got to pass the classes. He said, I flunked out of college after three semesters with a 1.4 GPA. <laughs> and if you've not been to college, that's really bad. Um, but he, so he said he joined the Naval Reserves, eventually, uh, you know, went back to school, but he was still on active duty, so his dad uh, had to. Uh, register him, because uh, he's going to get to school late, he says his dad was walking across campus looking for registration. He met the head of the communications department, and you know, I guess his dad kind of looked lost. He asked him if he could help him with, help him with something, and you know he said, "I'm trying to get my son registered, and uh, the, you know that he needed a major uh, that included the most amount of reading and writing and no math." <laughs> Amen, Lordy. <laughs> um, but so the, the head of the comm department, being an opportunist, said that, you know, he'd like to help. And so his, when his dad talked to him next, he said, you know, congratulations, you're now a journal, journalism major. And here's what Chris said. He said it was a match made in heaven, literally. And he used this phrase, and I, and I hope this sticks with you. He said it was a providential failure. It was a providential failure that God used to get me where he wanted me to be for the rest of my life. Providential failure. Listen, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. God has purpose even in our failures. Some of you just need to get up and get going forward with him again. Listen to me. A failure that leaves us humble is better in the long run than a victory that leaves us proud. Listen, God uses pain for good purposes. Let him do that. Last one, God is over all including human rulers, and He won't share His glory with anyone. Understand, Nebuchadnezzar had been all about his glory. He's talking about his great accomplishments, but then now when God changed his heart, he's come to the place where he's bookending this chapter with praising God. Giving God glory at the beginning and at the end. Listen, we're glory hogs. We have an insatiable desire for glory. You know, you see it even in advertising. There's, there's a Nike uh, ad campaign that says, twice the guts, double the glory. Uh, I wish I'd taken a picture of it. When we were in the airport in Honolulu a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was uh, an ad, I think it was for clothing that the theme of it was glory. We want glory, but what we have to decide is are we going to be about our glory or the glory of God? So the conviction is that God brings down the proud. He lifts up the humble by His grace. So the action that would correspond with it is that we will humble ourselves and depend on the grace of of God. We will humble ourselves and depend on the grace of God for our salvation, for daily living. Well, what does this look like? Well, it includes repenting. Remember verse 27. Daniel said, "My advice is to break off your sins by being righteous." It's by looking up to heaven. You know, when we're proud, we look down on other people. We look around and compare ourselves to others. But humility is coming to the place uh, of where we look up to heaven. Uh, Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less because we see ourselves in the light of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. But that's what he said he did in verse 34, that he looked To heaven. And then, like I just said, it's boasting in Jesus instead of ourselves. We're going to boast in something, but Paul said, Galatians 6 14, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, are we boasting in ourselves? Are we going around wanting to be seen and talking about how great we are, at least thinking it on the inside or touting our accomplishments? Or do we present ourselves as, I am who I am by the grace of God? I'm a sinner. I deserve to be in hell. But Jesus has rescued me. All glory be to him. That's the testimony of a Christian. No I in it other than I've sinned. This is what Jesus did for me. Is that your testimony? In our daily lives, what we have, what we've done. Is it look at me, look at what I've accomplished, or this is a gracious gift of God? Let me close with the connections to Jesus and just want to point out a couple here. I want us to think about Jesus as the antithesis, as the the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a king who tried to lift himself up. Jesus was a king who brought himself down, though Philippians 2.5, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And you see, The reason we can be lifted up is because Jesus went down. That's the gospel. We tried to substitute ourselves in the place of God, but he in his grace and mercy substituted himself in our place. The the King of kings and the Lord of lords left the splendor and glory and majesty of heaven to come to earth as a man, to be a servant, but to go all the way down to the death of the cross for us in our place, bearing our sins. Now, he's been exalted to the highest place, and if we're trusting him and living for his glory, he'll raise us up. With him, but if we reject him, then we're going to be stuck in our sins forever. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then, and picking up in verse 26, he, he says, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's us spiritually. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Are we glorying in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice for us, or in ourselves? We're walking in pride, we're walking in humility. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said, those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Listen, we can humble ourselves or force God to humiliate us. Which again though, that's his grace if it ultimately leads to our salvation or God can just leave us in our sins. Someday we'll bow our knee that it'll be too late. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross alone for your salvation, for your sanctification, for your supply in daily life? Or is it about you? Is it for you? Is it so that you'll be known? So you'll be seen. Do you think you've got it together? You can handle it. You can do it. You can take care of it. Oh, maybe you need a little boost from God uh, now and then. Or is it you know That everything you are depends on Jesus Christ. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Let's humble ourselves so he can lift us up. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.